Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're entering what is technically part two, or part one if you want to be picky, of a trilogy about the Third Crusade. I very briefly touched on this era in the last episode over Hassan Isada and the Order of Assassins, so listen to that one for what I consider the first in the trilogy. As with every war, there's more than one side to the story. The Crusade era has many stories to tell, and that's even true when it comes to just the Third Crusade. This episode, we're focusing on Al-Nasir Salah al-Din Yusuf ibn Ayyub, more commonly known as Salah al-Din or just Saladin. He was the first sultan of the Ayyubid dynasty and is often seen as the face of the Muslim faction of the Third Crusade. Saladin has sometimes been referred to as the most famous Kurd in history. Kurd here refers to a member of the Kurdish people, an Iranian ethnic group that mainly live in the northern part of southwestern Asia, so Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and Syria. At the height of his power, he'll have overthrown a rival caliph, earned the ire of the European Christians, and even become a target for the Order of the Assassins. Clearly, we have a lot to cover, including his accomplishments before the Third Crusade even begins. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the late 12th century of Southwest Asia in Of God and Glory, Part 1, Saladin. If you've listened to this show for long enough, you should be able to guess what my opinions on the Crusades are. If not, you'll find out soon enough. So just to begin at the very beginning, what is a Crusade? Well, if you write it with a lowercase c, then it means the following. A remedial enterprise undertaken with zeal and enthusiasm. Sounds like that could really mean anything done with enough gusto, right? But what happens when you capitalize that c? With that, it means any of the military expeditions undertaken by Christian powers in the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries to win the Holy Land from the Muslims. At least, that's the main era of the Crusades. We're dealing with the Third Crusade for this miniseries, so we'll be covering the first and second ones in the background history lesson. But there would be many more later on. How many? That depends on who you ask. During the Crusade era, there were at least nine wars that could be considered Crusades, but Crusading would continue further on past that era up until the late 17th century, except for the last Crusade, which occurred in 1989 when Harrison Ford and Sean Connery teamed up for a wild time. So how did all of this Crusading business begin anyway? There are several major inciting reasons for the First Crusade. Let's start with the Muslim side since we're covering Saladin this episode. It begins with the Seljuks, who appeared in the previous episode over Hassani Sabah. They were a Sunni Muslim empire who were ethnically Turks, so West Central Asians. The Seljuks appeared on the scene in the mid-11th century and began their grand train of conquest across Asia Minor and the rest of the Middle East. Their conquests in Turkey set them against the Byzantine Empire, from which they gained control of important cities like Antioch and Nicaea. In 1078, the Seljuks created the Sultanate of Rome in Bithynia, a region in northern Turkey, and set Nicaea as the capital. Nine years later, the Seljuks captured the city of Jerusalem. 
The Byzantine emperor of the time, Alexios I Komnenos, realized that the Seljuk capture of Jerusalem was the perfect inciting event for him to get allies for his war against the Muslim Empire. Okay, so Jerusalem was already under Muslim control before the Seljuks came on the scene, but we'll cover that more next episode. In 1095, Alexios sent word to Pope Urban II, requesting aid from the Catholic Church in Western Europe. The Pope quickly agreed, realizing several things. First and foremost, if Urban II sends a Christian army to defeat the Seljuks in Jerusalem, it becomes a Christian city, a big win for Christianity. Second, a victorious crusade would bring back prestige to the Vatican. For the past few centuries, the papacy had been on the decline in terms of power. I've already covered this in a previous episode, episode 23 to be precise, so listen to that one to learn more. It's really fun and really weird. Finally, and definitely the most unlikely to happen in terms of victory, Urban II was hoping that he could reunite the Western and Eastern Christian churches under one name again, specifically one that was under his control. I don't think that defeating a Muslim empire would change the fact that the two churches had a fundamental difference in terms of interpreting scripture, but who knows. In 1096, the Crusaders began their march eastward in hopes of attaining victory for God and the church. They numbered somewhere around 100,000 people, with well over half of that actually being soldiers, the other half being servants, doctors, and other pilgrims seeking victory. To make a long story very short, by 1099, the Crusaders recaptured Nicaea, Antioch, and Jerusalem, as well as creating several other Crusader states on the eastern Mediterranean. Around 50 years later, in 1144, Imad ad-Din Zangi, the Muslim leader of northern Iraq and parts of Syria, captured the city of Edessa in Syria. The city had been captured by Christians during the First Crusade, but was now back in Muslim hands. As local Western Christians were being sold into slavery, Eastern Christians were given a pass, a plea was sent to the Pope to respond. By the end of 1145, Pope Eugenius III called for the Second Crusade to begin. The Crusaders would ultimately fail in their goal of recapturing Edessa, as well as the greater goal of taking the Holy Land back from Muslim control. Ironically, the Crusaders would not find victories against Muslim forces in Asia, but in Europe itself. Crusaders who were probably meant to sail out east instead sailed west and ended the occupation of the Moors, Muslims from northern Africa, in Lisbon, Portugal. Even after Zangi's death in 1146, his son and successor, Nur ad-Din, proved to be a capable leader who would continue to push back the European armies. He managed to consolidate power in Syria, creating a powerful front against the invaders. His powerful reign would set the stage for other Muslim leaders to rise up, including one man who would come to be known as one of the most famous figures of the Crusade era. Saladin was born into a Sunni Muslim family in the upper Mesopotamian city of Tikrit in modern-day Iraq in 1137. The name Salah ad-Din is actually an honorific epithet meaning righteousness of the faith. His father, Ayyub, and his uncle, Shirka, were both military commanders under Imad ad-Din Zengi. His uncle would go on to also serve under Nur ad-Din as the commander of his forces in Egypt. Saladin was raised in the city of Damascus until he eventually joined the military in 1164 and served under the command of his uncle in Egypt. 
Nur ad-Din had been asked by the Fatimid Caliphate vizier to oversee a conflict between himself and another man over who should be vizier. If you didn't listen to the last episode, the Fatimid Caliphate was a Shia Muslim Caliphate ruled out of Egypt. Nur ad-Din and the Zengids, the dynasty named after his father, were Sunni Muslims. So yeah, it's a bit strange that they were asked to interfere in a Shia conflict. Granted, the Zengids, who were part of the Greater Seljuk Empire, were very powerful. Despite Saladin's uncle helping out the Fatimid vizier, the latter turned on Shirka's army and allied himself with the king of Jerusalem, Amalric I. It's reported that in 1169, Saladin killed the Fatimid vizier, I guess kinda ending the conflict? Though his uncle would also die later that year, possibly from dysentery or some other gross digestive problem. Nur ad-Din chose Saladin as his uncle's successor to lead the Zengid army in Egypt. Very soon afterward, the Fatimid Caliph appointed Saladin as his new vizier. Once again, Saladin is Sunni and the Fatimids are Shia. That's not something that should be happening. Some historians claim that he was chosen because the Fatimids viewed him as weak, probably assuming that he would not be able to overthrow the Caliph because the Fatimids were in a pretty lousy state by that point. Others say that he was chosen hoping that it would fracture the Zengid powers. Yet others claim that it was the Zengids who pressured the Fatimids to choose Saladin as the new vizier. Well, if rumors of the Fatimids thinking Saladin was weak were true, boy were they wrong. Saladin quickly began worming his way through the Fatimid Caliphate, setting things up for a massive change. When Caliph al-Adid died in 1171, Saladin swooped in to take over. He became the governor of Egypt and began aligning the former Fatimid Caliphate with the Sunni Abbasid Caliphate out of Baghdad. Saladin's rise to prominence, however, was only just beginning. In 1174, Nur ad-Din passed away, opening up a power vacuum in absence of a Zengid ruler. Making the obvious move, Saladin once more stepped in and proclaimed himself Sultan of Egypt. Later that year, he marched north into Syria and captured his childhood home of Damascus. He was able to position himself as a figure of authority considering he had successfully overthrown the Shia Fatimids in order to protect Sunni interests in Egypt and the rest of the Middle East. His armies would continue with victories in northern Iraq, several territories in Syria, and Yemen, the latter conquests now giving Saladin control over the Red Sea. The Sultan began proclaiming that he was the one man who could protect the Muslim world from the Christians of the West, which was a bit ironic because he was mostly just waging war on other Muslim nations at this point. Not everyone was on board with this though, including the Nazari Shias and their Order of the Assassins, who made two separate attempts on Saladin's life. In return, he attacked their fortress at Masyaf in Syria, devastating the surrounding area. But Saladin also knew that waging war was not enough if he was to lead a holy war, a jihad, against the Christians and their crusader states. He needed to consolidate his power and use diplomatic approaches. One step he took in this direction was marrying a woman named Ismat. Ismat was Nur ad-Din's widow and the daughter of a recently deceased Syrian king. He also formed a peace treaty with the Byzantine Empire that ensured both sides protection against the Seljuk dynasty, who Saladin now fought against in his conquest. 
He even went as far as to make peace with the king of Jerusalem, granting him a strange, somewhat peaceful relationship with the local Christian population. This peace allowed him to push out his rivals without also butting heads with the Crusader states. But warring would still be Saladin's best bet at consolidating power. By the end of 1175, the current caliph of the Abbasids in Baghdad proclaimed Saladin Sultan of Egypt, Yemen, and Syria. By 1183, Saladin finally captured the city of Aleppo from Nur ad-Din's son, officially taking control of Syria and all of the lands of his former commander, thus forming the Ayyubid dynasty. So with most of his rivals within the Muslim sphere of influence taken care of, it was finally time for Saladin to turn his eyes towards the Europeans. For the most part, historians tend to refer to the Europeans living in the Crusader states as the Latins or Franks, regardless of whether the people were actually from France or not. So if at any point in this episode I say Franks or Latins, I'm referring to the Europeans. Obviously, the main stronghold of Christendom in the Middle East was Jerusalem, which was ruled by the Christian and Frankish King of Jerusalem. In 1185, King Baldwin IV passed away leaving the city to his nephew, Baldwin V, who was only about 7 or 8 years old by this point. When Baldwin V died the next year, his mother and father stepped in as the new king and queen. Things seemed to right themselves after two quick kingly deaths, until Renald of Châtillon entered the picture. Renald was Prince of Antioch and Lord of Montreal, but not any of the Montreals you're thinking of because this is referring to a fort and land controlled by modern-day Jordan. He supported Baldwin V's mother, Sibylla, in her claim as the Queen of Jerusalem. Well, one day, Renald thought it would be a great idea to raid a caravan traveling from Egypt to Syria. He had the caravanners thrown into prison. The merchants of the caravan were Saladin's citizens, meaning that Renald had broken the truce the Christian population had briefly enjoyed with the Sultan of Egypt and Syria. Sibylla and her husband, King Guy of Lusignan, ordered Renald to release the prisoners and apologize to Saladin. But the Prince of Antioch refused. In retaliation, Saladin sent his troops to invade the area around the crusader-controlled city of Acre, which can be pronounced either as Acre or Acre, in May of 1187. Saladin's soldiers were met by the Knights Templar and engaged in what is known as the Battle of Crescent. It was a devastating defeat for the Templars, who lost almost 500 soldiers in the conflict, aka all but three of their men. This loss severely crippled Jerusalem's army, but Saladin was not yet finished with his revenge. Not by a long shot. Two months later in July, the Sultan laid siege to the city of Tiberias. Despite warnings from one of his advisors and members of the Knights Hospitaller, King Guy decided to engage Saladin's troops. Guy was really betting on landing a decisive victory against Saladin because he left Jerusalem virtually defenseless while leading a massive army of about 20,000 soldiers, far larger than a crusader state army would usually muster for battle. Well, Saladin had double that for his siege. The crusaders marched for Tiberias under the banner of what was called the True Cross. This was a relic that was said to be part of the cross on which Jesus was crucified. 
They met with Saladin's forces on July 3rd, and thus began the Battle of Hattin, named for the nearby extinct volcano, the Horns of Hattin. The battle ended up being a devastating loss for the Crusader states. Most of their army was lost in the actual conflict, while 200 knights who had been recaptured were later executed. Guy and several other European nobles, including Reynald of Châtillon, were captured and brought before Saladin. Now, fun fact about medieval Muslim warfare. If the leader of an army gives their prisoner water, it means the prisoner's life will be spared. Saladin ordered for Guy to be given a goblet full of water. Since he was unaware of this custom, Guy decided to pass the goblet to Reynald. Saladin knocked the cup out of Reynald's hands and berated the king of Jerusalem, apparently saying, I did not ask this evil man to drink, and he would not save his life by doing so. He laid all the blame for the events on Reynald, which, fair, and then it was either through his orders or by Saladin's own hands that Reynald of Châtillon was executed. Saladin then quickly assuaged Guy's fears by telling him that a king does not kill his fellow kings. This whole interaction is usually marked by most historians as a crowning point for Saladin's brand of chivalry. In fact, despite everything that has just occurred and is about to occur throughout the rest of this story, Saladin is usually remembered as being very generous even as he waged a massive war against Europe. But still, Guy and his army had lost, so now Saladin resumed his capture of Tiberius. He also took the relic of the True Cross and sent it to Damascus. In the following two months, Saladin captured several other important Crusader state cities, including Acre, Jaffa, and Beirut. It was finally then, in late September of 1187, that Saladin turned his eyes on the biggest prize of them all, Jerusalem. The city of Tyre, another European-controlled city in the Crusader states that Saladin had yet to conquer, lived a man named Balian, lord of the castle Ibeline. He was married to a woman named Maria Komneni, a former queen of Jerusalem while married to her first husband and the stepmother of King Baldwin IV. During Saladin's conquests of the Crusader states, Balian was still in Tyre, but Maria was in Jerusalem. Balian sent a desperate plea to Saladin, asking the Sultan if he could travel to Jerusalem, get his wife and family, and then leave before Saladin's army attacked the city. Being the magnanimous ruler that he was, Saladin agreed to Balian's terms as long as the nobleman was in and out of the city for less than a single day. Sounds good and simple, right? Well, as soon as Balian was in the city, everyone began clamoring for him to stay and defend the city from Saladin. Queen Sibylla begged him. The Catholic Patriarch of Jerusalem even said that he would absolve Balian of his agreement with Saladin if he stayed to defend the capital. What was the guy supposed to do now? Just say no and let his people fight a war they'd definitely lose? Remember, King Guy had basically left the city unguarded hoping that he would defeat Saladin at Tiberias. Knowing he had no other choice, I mean he did but I'm sure it would have shamed him for the rest of his life. Balian decided to stay in Jerusalem and break his vow to Saladin. When Saladin received word from Balian about how things were going to go down, the Sultan once more decided to be honorable. He sent an emissary to escort Balian's family and household to the capital of Tripoli in Lebanon. Meanwhile, the new protector of Jerusalem was overseeing the preparations for the siege. 
Due to the extreme lack of knights, some sources list there only being 14 left in the entire city, Valian quickly knighted 60 more men to fill the ranks. Not a whole lot better, but definitely better than just 14. Saladin, despite wanting to take Jerusalem quickly, made several different offers to the people of Jerusalem. He actually wanted this to go peacefully. Leave the city and you're free to take all of your possessions with you. Nope, refused. Carry on and if no help arrives in half a year, surrender the city to us. Nope again. On September 20th, with no other options than to lead an army, Saladin mobilized his troops and marched towards Jerusalem. Saladin initially attacked the city from the west. However, things were not going well for him on the western side of the city because the dang sun was getting in his soldiers' eyes. Yeah, that is a true fact. The sun was Saladin's most powerful foe. Realizing his error in strategy, Saladin moved his forces to the eastern side of the city. Interesting fact, the gate Saladin's forces attacked on the eastern side of the city was the same position the Crusaders had attacked 88 years before during the First Crusade when they took the city from the Fatimid Caliphate. And lo and behold, history repeated itself. On September 28th, Saladin's forces broke through the city walls signaling that his army was free to overtake the city, a most assured victory on his part. Valian made one final ditch effort and rode out of the city to meet Saladin. When he approached the Sultan, he gave an impassioned speech promising that the people of Jerusalem would not go down easily. And if the Ayyubid army did decide to enter the city, he would not hesitate to kill all 5,000 Muslims who lived within Jerusalem's walls. Saladin, a ruler who stylized himself as the protector of all Muslims, hesitated upon hearing Valian's threat. In order to protect his fellow Muslims, Saladin promised a bloodless takeover of the city. In order to do this, everyone in Jerusalem would become his hostage unless they could pay a ransom. Saladin even set the ransom price fairly low for each hostage. After further deliberations, he allowed the elderly and all noblewomen to leave without paying ransom. He even gave Queen Sibylla safe passage to meet with King Guy in captivity. Everyone else had 40 days to come up with their ransom, though even with Saladin's bargain price, many would be unable to pay for it. Oddly enough, several of Saladin's commanders, including his own brother, started paying the ransom of some of the citizens of Jerusalem. By the end of it all, despite many people being given free passes, Saladin ended up taking 15,000 citizens of Jerusalem as his hostages. Saladin himself did not enter the city until October 2nd, which corresponded with the Islamic calendar date of the 27th of Rajab, the anniversary of the Prophet Muhammad traveling from Mecca to Jerusalem and finally to heaven all within a single night. This was done very purposely on Saladin's part, further solidifying his position as the leader of the Muslim world by echoing the footsteps of Muhammad. Jerusalem was his. the siege and capture of Jerusalem hit Europe and the Vatican like a meteor strike. The classical story goes that Pope Urban III heard the news of Saladin's victory and keeled over dead on the spot. Some say he ordered the Third Crusade to begin with his final breath. That story is usually considered apocryphal, and the truth is probably that news didn't reach the Vatican until after the election of his successor, Pope Gregory VIII. 
On October 29th, the Pope issued the papal bull Auditor Tremendi, calling for the Third Crusade to begin. Ironically, the Auditor Tremendi was enacted due to the defeat at the Battle of Hattin and the taking of the True Cross, considering that news of the fall of Jerusalem had not yet actually reached Europe. The bull claimed that Saladin's victories were due to the sins of Christendom. Apparently, if they had been holier, none of this would have ever happened. And what was the only way to repent for those sins? Well, obviously joining in on the crusade and going out east to kill people to take back the Holy Land. One of the first rulers that Pope Gregory asked for aid from was the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. Despite being the leader of the Holy Roman Empire, Barbarossa had once been excommunicated from the Catholic Church for supporting the wrong pope, as these things happened during this period in history. Pope Gregory, during his time as a cardinal, was actually the one who approached the emperor with an offer of reconciliation to rejoin the church, so the pair actually had a decent relationship. Barbarossa was hesitant to take up the metaphorical cross of joining the Third Crusade. He especially did not want to be seen as the symbolic religious commander, instead suggesting that rule should go to King Philip II of France. Unfortunately, Philip was at war with England, so France was unable to take part in the crusade anytime soon. Begrudgingly, in March of 1188, Barbarossa agreed to lead the first wave of the crusaders out east. He called for a general expedition against the pagans, but made sure to add a specific addendum to that phrase. During the First and Second Crusades, Christian Crusaders had been particularly brutal against the Jews living in both Europe and the Middle East. In order to protect the Jewish people, especially those living in his empire, he sanctioned the protection of the Jews. That didn't stop him, however, from imposing massive taxes on Jewish citizens of the Holy Roman Empire in order to fund the Crusade. Also, just before leaving, Barbarossa had to take care of something kind of important. Thirteen years before, in 1175, the Holy Roman Emperor had actually signed a peace treaty with Saladin. Pretty awkward to show up to a war against a guy you're supposed to be on good terms with. So Barbarossa sent a letter to the Sultan telling him that, unfortunately due to the crusade, he had to break off their peace treaty. You know, just the usual kind of breakup. And though it would take about another year to get everything together, in April of 1189, Barbarossa set out with a massive army towards the Latin states to meet Saladin in battle. Barbarossa set off on the long way to the Third Crusade, choosing to go overland instead of going by boat. This put him in the path of the Byzantine Empire, and remember that despite everything, the Byzantines were still kinda cool with Saladin. Both sides, the Western Christians and the Byzantines, were wary of this passing. Some people even believe that Emperor Isaac II of the Byzantines made an attempt to stall Barbarossa's armies. However, the Crusaders managed to make their way through Byzantine land without inciting a war against their eastern neighbors. Things then took an unexpected turn in southern Turkey. Going by advice from Armenian citizens, Barbarossa decided to take a shortcut by following the Salaf River. On June 10th, 1190, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa drowned. There are several accounts of how this happened, all equally kind of funny and ridiculous. 
The first account, allegedly written by someone in Barbarossa's camp, says that Barbarossa foolishly attempted to swim across the river, drowning in his attempt after being sucked away by the current. A second account says that his horse bucked him off the saddle while in the river, and Barbarossa's armor weighed him down. A third account by a Muslim historian in Saladin's army says that Barbarossa died while attempting to bathe himself. The historian says that he drowned at a place where the water was not even up to his waist. While this one sounds like it was made solely to humiliate Barbarossa's memory, a fourth and final account, this one written by a clergy member accompanying the emperor, wrote about Barbarossa drowning while he was bathing, saying that, by the secret judgment of God there was an unexpected and lamentable death. Some people are more prone to actually believe the bathing account due to who they believe wrote that final account, a man named Godfrey of Spitzenberg, who was relatively close to the emperor. Barbarossa had been marching for weeks. Anyone would be exhausted by that point. So yeah, he was probably swept up in the current and drowned. His death would result in most of his army deciding to turn around and march back home to Europe. No one was left to stand in Saladin's way of controlling the Middle East. The crusade was believed to be a complete failure by this point. But there were two more kings who would be willing to take up the cross in order to fight against the armies of Saladin. The first was King Philip II of France, the man Barbarossa originally wanted to lead. After ending his war against King Henry II of England, Philip decided to join in the Crusades for God and glory. But there was another king who would also join the Crusades and quickly become the name most people remember when it comes to the European rulers of the Third Crusade. The man who was Saladin's equal in almost all measures to the point that the two men almost became each other's greatest fan. With King Henry II's death in July of 1189, his son Richard would take the throne and become King Richard I of England, aka Richard the Lionheart. With Richard the Lionheart now entering the story, I think it's a good place to call it for this episode. Don't worry, even though we'll be switching perspectives for the next installment of the story of the Third Crusade, we will see an end to Saladin's story. That, however, won't be until the next episode. So for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. As I said, next episode will conclude the story of the Third Crusade where we'll see things from the perspective of King Richard the Lionheart. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. <laughs>